Welcome back to the Illinois Agronomy Update. I'm your host, Troy Kazire with Hertz Farm Management in Geneseo, Illinois. And uh, we're excited to have Lance Tarchioni back with us. Lance is a technical agronomist with the Calbasgro, kind of in, uh, I guess we'll call it central Illinois. Lance, uh, thanks for thanks for coming back today. Yep, happy to be here, Troy. I, I was going to tell you, you're, you're, uh, you're too easily excited uh, if me coming <laughs> back is exciting. Uh, no, not at all. Always, always great discussion with you, Lance. I, I look forward to it. Uh, why don't you, uh, uh, for some folks that maybe haven't haven't heard before prior episodes, why don't you kind of remind us what your uh, kind of describe what your role is there with the Calabas Grow, and maybe a little kind of hone in on your geography a little bit, and kind of kind of fill us in on one, what you do down there. Yeah, sure. Uh, so I've been uh, been doing this uh, for a long time. Uh, next uh, next March uh, will be uh, my my 30 year anniversary of me starting my career in agronomy work, and I uh, have spent a vast majority of those years in in Western Illinois. And uh, I currently cover um, Warren, Henderson, Knox, McDonough, Hancock, Fulton, Mason, Taswell, and Logan County. So. Monmouth over to Carthage across the Illinois River, uh, Havana down to uh, Mount Pulaski area roughly would kind of be the the greater geography that uh, that I cover. Uh, live and farm in the in the London Mills area, northern Fulton, southern Knox County, and and as a technical agronomist for DeKalb and Asgro, what what I do is I. Uh, evaluate new products. I give uh, our customers technical product support, uh, support for sales reps and in, in for sales districts and, and all of their dealers that represent our DeKalb and Asgro products and just try to be a, a technical resource for my sales reps, our dealers, and our farmer customers uh, is, uh, is really what I see my role as as a, as a technical agronomist. Yeah, absolutely. And, and obviously in that role, you're, you know, you're, you're getting a lot of windshield time and, and you're, uh, you're getting into a lot of fields uh, all through that geography and you're really getting, uh, getting a good look at what's going on. And that's kind of what we wanted to tap into today and, and talk a little bit about just, just the crop status update. Um, and I think, uh, you know, based on what we're seeing right now, probably that we'll spend the majority of our time uh, today talking about disease and uh, you know as I as I take a look in this area which is a little bit further north from you but um, I would say one of the things we'll kind of start with corn here one of the things that that I'm seeing a lot of is is uh, anthracnose a lot of top dieback and 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 crown rot as well um, and and it sounds like you're seeing a lot of that in, in your geography uh, in your geography too. Yeah, absolutely, Troy. And I, I think as we discussed a little bit, you know, my area it seems to be showing up uh, more severely earlier and, and causing more damage in what I would consider to be the more drought stress parts of my area. I, I, I My whole territory is below average rainfall for the year. And as you slide south of my area into you know, Chris Carlisle's area, my counterpart to the south, most of Chris's area is above normal for the year. But in, across my area, it depends a lot on, um, you know, every, everybody's been dry, but it depends on when you were dry and, you know, when did you get your heavy rains and, and what when were you dry and, and those sorts of things are really having some big influences what we're seeing in the crop. But I would 
I would agree with you that uh, anthracnose stalk rot, anthracnose top dieback, which is which is all the same pathogen, and anthracnose can also be a a, a culprit in in crown rot. Uh, fusarium stalk rot, uh, fusarium is certainly a culprit in in crown rot, one of the primary pathogens we talk about with crown rot, and uh, those those diseases are certainly uh, impacting the uh, maturity and and grain fill of, of corn in, in certain areas. I would say as I travel around, when I get in places that have had, you know, ample rainfall in August, I don't see as much of that. But, um, you know, we may, you know, as we get closer to maturity, we may see some there as well. Um, I've been tracking heat units lately, and I, I think it's, uh, you know, some growers would maybe be surprised, you know, how far behind normal we are unless a disease is artificially speeding up the maturity of your crop. Um, in some areas where there was a lot of corn planted middle of May, we're two weeks plus away from black layer on, on that mid May planted corn, unless you planted something really early. So it's, um, you know, it's not looking like it's going to be an early harvest, uh, unless you're in a dry area where things are kind of dying prematurely. Yeah, and we, and we kind of talked about, you know, you when we were, before we started recording here, you know, you and I were, were kind of chatting about a few things, and, and uh, you know, you, you, you touched on stresses there and grain fill and, and, you know, the things that we see from a, from a timing standpoint, right? Uh, you know, when, when that stress occurred as far as the plant's development, and, and uh, you know, you were talking about tip back. If, if you would kind of Kind of, kind of talk about that and, and some of the things that you're seeing there with regard to stress timing and how that's manifested itself now. Yeah, it's, it's really been an Ill- interesting illustration as you travel around the state. Um, and like I say, the, um, you, know, you, you can have two places that both had the same amount of rainfall from May 1st to September 1st, but the distribution of that rainfall was dramatically different and, and the end result uh, is, is different. And, and that corn plant and soybean plant too, for that matter, but corn in particular will, will tell you what point in its life, uh, it was not feeling well. And, you know, are we looking at uh, low row number? Are we looking at, uh, shorter ears? Are we looking at, um, an ear that didn't pollinate well? Are we looking at an ear that had good length and good pollination, but then tipped back a lot? Uh, or are we looking at an ear with uh, maybe shallow kernels or small kernels or, um, you know, look like it, they, they didn't fill out well. And, and it's very interesting as you look at certain parts of the state where it was extremely dry in May, very dry in June, went into pollination under stress to get some moisture in the middle part of July, but, but probably didn't get it quite in time. Um, and, and we had quite a bit of tip back in, in certain areas. And, and another factor in that is we have very good populations in a lot of fields. So if you've got, you know, 35, 36,000 ears, there's quite a bit of competition out there in the field for, for resources. And in some cases, there just wasn't enough to go around. And, um, you know, you got through pollination well, you had lots of kernels. And, and there were more kernels on that ear than that plant could support, and, and you get tipped back. Um, you know, and then you look at another part of the state where it wasn't quite as dry in June, 
went into pollination with a little better soil moisture. Yeah, it was a little dry in July. My, my whole territory got less than average rainfall in July, but you know, it was adequate that we didn't have tip back. Uh, but then some of those areas got really dry, you know, from late July through August. And, and I've got quite a few acres of my territory that's had, you know, maybe less than an inch and a half of rain since the middle of July. And, and in those areas, you know, we, we, we didn't have tip back, uh, because the, the soil moisture was good enough to get us to the R3 growth stage. But since then it's gotten very dry. Well, if you make it to R3, uh, you're not going to have tip back. And the only way that plant can, uh, um, alleviate the stress it's under is to, you know, make those kernels smaller. You know, that's the scenario that the plant's under a tremendous amount of stress. We get a lot of stock cannibalization. It really opens that plant up to being taken down by pathogens like fusarium and anthracnose, which are, which are opportunistic pathogens in the plant. They're, they're in the plant, not uncommon that they be in the plant, but when the plant's under severe stress, and cannibalizing itself because it's trying to finish off that ear that it set when things were a little rosier from an environmental standpoint. Uh, you just, you know, it just kind of sends that plant in a, you know, down a, down a pretty rough road, uh, trying to finish off that ear with a lack of resources. And, and that's when we end up with stock cannibalization and, and crown rot, uh, can really flare up and, and uh, you see anthracnose and you see those ghosted plants. And, and I'm seeing a lot of premature death, uh, especially in stressful areas and fields and, you know, fields that, you know, have not accumulated enough heat units to be black layered based on, you know, normal plant development, but they're dying prematurely due to drought stress and disease and, and other challenges. Yeah. And that is, that's, one of the things that's always fascinated me about about corn in particular, soybeans to a lesser extent, but well, uh, you know, you can you can look at you can look at a cornfield this time of year, and and you can just about you can just about tell the story of uh, of of what things were like in general uh, during during each key phase of of that growth state or uh, of that growth cycle. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I think back to the you know last year we had in in this area anyway really uh dry um a, a lot I, I guess i would call a pretty severe hot and dry spell uh in that kind of v4 to v6 range and and boy it was it was tough to find uh any ears that were more than 16 around anywhere um and and yeah it, it the the timing of that stress manifests itself in different ways and and uh, uh always always fascinating to to try to, to to try to go into a field and, and tease that out right well, we've, 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 uh, you know, certainly talked about rootworm a lot, you know, on the program before, but I, I was talking to a, a guy that had been visiting with some growers in Northern Illinois and, you know, they've really had pretty good growing season, ample moisture, um, you know, weren't terribly dry, you know, things seem pretty good. And, and in certain cases they're still seeing a lot of tip back. Well, you know, with the rootworm pressure that some people are dealing with in Northern Illinois, if you're, if you're, rootworm control uh, measure is is not giving you great root protection if you've only got half a root system um, you know you, you might feel some drought stress uh, even if it's not particularly dry and so you know as you travel around the state there's different issues that that can cause the same problem and and the 
the common denominator is the plant was under stress, but was it stress from, you know, having a pruned root system? Was it stress from being too dry? Was it stress from being, you know, there, we had a few nights in there, a few short, you know, they weren't long durations, but we had several nights where it was, you know, when, when, when you're watching the 10 o'clock news, uh, weather at, you know, 10, 20 at night and it's 88 and, and you walk outside at six o'clock the next morning and it's 82. Um, you know, that was a, that, that was a rough night to be a corn plant. And, um, you know, those, those type of nighttime temperatures we, we know are, are, are pretty stressful. I, I personally tend to think that moisture stress is, is more damaging than temperature stress on corn, but you know, uh, hot, hot nights certainly are a stress as well. Um, you know, some people are talking about, you know, solar radiation from, you know, days when we didn't have full sunlight. I, I don't think that's much of an issue this year. That to me was more of an issue last year than this year. Right. But some agronomists that have speculated that, you know, maybe some cloudy days were, were leading to low photosynthetic rates and maybe that contributed to, to tip back. But, you know, personally, you know, my, the most consistent thing I see is if you were, if you were really dry after pollination, um, you got some tip back and, um, and that's not necessarily a, a, a horrible thing. I, I, I don't like it when I don't see any, because that's a indication. I, I left some yield on the table and I, and I could have gotten a better yield if I had a few more ears. So I, you know, while it's never good to see three inches of tip back on an ear, you know, I, I want to see some. And, um, you know, it's just, uh, I, I agree with you. It is interesting to, uh, you know, kind of put, put, put together, uh, an image of what the growing season was like for that plant, you know, based on, you know, what, what it's telling you. Yep. Absolutely. Well, let's, uh, let's kind of shift gears into soybeans a little bit. And there again, disease is, I think, kind of the, kind of the big story, although we'll, we'll talk about insects here after a bit, um, Again, kind of depending on where you're at, you know, up northern areas, especially we're hearing we're hearing about some white mold, uh, seeing a lot of sudden death around here. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think depending on where you're at and again, the conditions, uh, brown stem rot is is showing up. And, and of course, uh, above ground, those sudden death and brown stem rot look look pretty much identical. So um, tell us a little bit about about what you're seeing and, and kind of what the uh, how the how the environment plays into that. Yeah, one of you you, you uh, talk about BSR and SDS kind of looking the same uh, on the leaves. That remind me of, of one of my bigger pet peeves. Uh, on a daily basis, I'll I'll get you know usually one or more pictures of soybean leaves with uh, green veins and either yellow or brown between the veins, and invariably someone always asks, "Is this SDS?" And, and I keep, I keep telling people that, you know, I, I can't tell you the answer to that question looking at that leaf. So quit sending me that picture, but that it just, it keeps coming. So, uh, so, so yeah, we're, we're up to like, uh, depending on how you count it, we're up to about six different things that can make a leaf that looks like that. So, so we have to, uh, do further investigation to determine, uh, what actually is it that's making the leaf look like that. But yes, if you get into areas where, you know, heavy soils, early planting, ample rainfall throughout the growing season, you know, I would say this is one of the 
worst SDS years we've had in the past several years. Um, I, I think it's going to give us an opportunity in some cases to, you know, put our SDS seed treatments to the test a little more than they maybe have been in recent years. Um, there, there's areas where, you know, there's SDS in every field and, and some fields are, you know, actually fairly high incidence, fairly high severity. Um, you get into drier pockets and, and, it, and it goes away. It's definitely a high moisture uh, disease. And, uh, and in the driest parts of my geography, I, I don't see any SDS at all. Um, you know, white mold is another disease that, that, that likes moisture. Um, it, it's a little bit different in, in, than sudden death in the, in the environment that it's favored by, but, but it likes moisture as well. And in areas where we've got beans that are very big, very growthy, very tall, maybe lodging, uh, and we've had plenty of moisture um, through the growing season and high humidity and, and keep that canopy damp and moist and wet, and especially if you're in an area where, and you certainly are, that's had a history of severe white mold in the past, you know, you might have more sclerotia in your soil. You might have a little heavier pressure. And, uh, when you get the right environment, um, you know, as, as soybean growers know all too well in central and North central, uh, Illinois, um, white mold can, can be a, can be a factor. And, uh, and then we've got areas where, you know, it's not disease that's going to limit soybean yield. It's, it's drought stress. And, and I'm, you know, seeing areas and, you know, lighter soil patches and in, in fields and stressier areas and fields where, where beans are yellowing prematurely. They get that kind of wilty, silverish noon where you can tell they're, they're really, really being stressed. And, um, you know, we can find, you know, pot abortion and seed abortion going on in, in fields. So, um, you know, I think diseases are going to impact the bean crop in areas that have had a lot of moisture and dryness is going to impact the bean crop in areas that, that have had too little moisture. And uh, if you're somewhere in between, um, you're, you're fortunate to have enough moisture to, to have good yields, and, and but it wasn't excessive enough to cause a disease issue. And, um, you know, to me, the bean crop just does not look near as healthy this year as it did last year and last year we, we had some challenging conditions for corn and our bean crop ended up being kind of a, a pleasant surprise they ended up being i think a lot better than a lot of people expected and um you know kind of in some cases offset what was a disappointing corn crop for some um this year and in, in, in a lot of areas it just feels to me like it's been maybe a little better year for corn than it has been for beans the way diseases and 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 rainfall patterns have set up um but if you're in an area that's caught really good rain late july and august and your beans look healthy uh, i i think they could be you know phenomenally good but um you know there's other places where uh you know i'm i'm kind of preparing for maybe a little more average bean yields yeah and i mean i you know the I guess if you're looking for a bright spot, you know, the sudden death and white mold in particular tend to be diseases that we associate with higher yield potential environments. Right. Um, and, and, you know, it, the, the, the question is, you know, how, how early did that disease get started? How, how 
how much is it going to progress and and what's the what's the impact on yield going to be and it's it's a little early to tell yet i think but um but uh yeah there's uh beans beans are always a little bit more difficult i think to to kind of tease out than than corn well with with any you know with, with anything that kills your crop prematurely the closer it is to natural maturity before it dies prematurely uh the closer you are to full yield potential so if yep. you've got beans that are you know almost ready to start turning uh before you see uh signs of disease that's that's good yep um if you're seeing signs of disease you know two months before maturity uh that that can get a little rough especially if the incidence and severity of that disease are are high yeah yeah and then, and then of course the trick becomes getting them out of the field before they're down to nine percent moisture well yeah there's always <laughs> so uh so let's let's talk a little bit about insects um I, you know it hasn't been i don't think a uh, a real high pressure year but but we are seeing and hearing a lot more about stink bug uh and and uh sounds like you're seeing quite a bit more of it too this year yeah i i would say gosh uh, two or three months ago even you know middle of the you know middle of the growing season it was just it was just easier to to find stink bugs you know i, I don't know that i've ever went in a field stink bug scouting but as you're walking fields, you just you just see them hanging out, crawling around. You see them on corn leaves, and uh, you see them in bean fields. And you just you know, it just seems to me like I've I've seen more. I've had more calls on stink bugs this year than normal. With people that say, "Hey, I was out in my field and I saw a lot of stink bugs. Should I be worried about that?" Uh, now that the corn, you know, since corn has you know the grain has gotten developed, and you start husking back ears and uh, it's easy to see, you know, signs of stink bug feeding on corn where you got the, some damage on the kernel where they, uh, probe through the husk and jabbed into the kernel and, and, uh, leave a, leave a wound on that kernel. And, and then here lately, I, I've had some pictures coming out of some bean fields with, uh, with a lot of, you know, young, uh, stink bug nymphs that uh, are going to grow into adult stink bugs and, and so I, I think there's probably some acres out there that, you know, could, could justify, um, you know, having some, some, some insect protection. And I've, and I've often thought that, you know, we go out at, at R3 and most of us put our fungicide on our soybeans and it's very common. We include an insecticide in that application. And, and then we think the next thing we're going to do is combine the field. We don't really pay a lot of attention to, what's going on in that field as long as we don't have a spider mite outbreak or something like that we kind of figure you know once you're done with that r3 application you know it's it's smooth sailing till harvest and, and i do think that between rootworm beetles bean leaf beetles japanese beetles stink bugs you know maybe grasshoppers sometimes there's a lot of pod feeding that occurs in soybean fields and a lot of leaf feeding as well. And part of me thinks that probably more often than we, re than we realize, especially when beans are 13 or $14, um, you know, we could be losing two or three bushels of yield from late insect infestations that go untreated. You know, we just kind of live with it. 
And, um, you know, there's probably situations where we could have a pretty positive ROI um, controlling some of those insects, but we don't really, you know, we're kind of tired of spending money. We're tired of scouting fields. We're tired of spraying. We're just, we're just tired and we want to, we want to get to harvest. And, um, so there's just not a lot of excitement about, uh, you know, scouting soybean fields for insects late season to make sure that we don't need to be controlling something, but there, there are situations where I think we probably should. Yeah. It may be interesting to see what happens over the next several years here as we, cause I, I think it's, I think it's pretty much agreed that we are seeing a little bit of a shift here with this, with this stink bug population, um, getting, getting to be a little bit, a little bit heavier every year, it seems like. And yeah, yeah, I, I see, you know, I, I see more and more seedling plants every year that were, you know, when they, when they probed through the side of that, that seedling corn plant and, and, and hit the growing point and then you, the corn plant just kind of grows wild and crazy and turns into more of a corn bush than a corn stalk and you know you're out walking the field when you got knee-high corn and you got all these abnormal looking plants that you know a whole bunch of tillers on them and don't really have a a main stalk that looks right they're just you know very goofy looking plants um you know those are those are often plants that were damaged by by a stink bug and uh and then they're you know feeding on seeds and pods and soybeans and damaging kernels and corn and um you know there are multiple generations of of stink bugs through the through the year multiple species of stink bugs and um you know they've really been a you know they've always been here um you see them all the time but it's never really been a pest that we've worked controlling and there are other parts of the country that you know like with the marmorated uh more um you know damaging i guess uh, species of stink bug have been fighting them and, and i understand there are certain parts of the country where they you know your house fills up with stink bugs like ours fill up with asian lady beetles at yeah. times and if i if i had to share my home with an insect i think i'd rather it was an asian lady beetle <laughs> than a stink bug troy so uh, if yes if, if we get to the point where they're invading my house um you know some serious stuff's gonna start happening with stink bugs yeah, <laughs> who cares about the threshold? Yeah, I wonder what the threshold is for home invasion of. Uh, <laughs> uh, so you you mentioned spider mites. We really haven't seen any uh, to to speak of in this area. But you you said you've got some pretty dry areas of your territory. Have you been Have you been seeing any spider mite? I I, I have not. I've, I've seen a few areas and fields that you know look a little suspicious along the edge, like it might be. Uh, uh, an area where they started in, um, you know, we've been dry enough that they, I, I'm a little surprised that we don't have more issues with them. And, you know, ironically, I've had more <clears throat> pictures sent to me and more conversations from people that do a good job scouting their fields about, about spider mites and corn than <laughs> I have yeah. in soybeans. Um, so there, there were, uh, there was an area in Tazewell County, um, where several growers had commented that they, you know, they had some pretty heavy infestations in the corn, and there were even a few applications made uh, in in corn, and that's that's been a few weeks ago, and it was a pretty isolated area, but um, not not just a pest of soybean like uh, like a lot of people think, but um, you know, I haven't seen any bean fields that I thought, you know 
would have warranted treatment. I'm, I'm sure they're out there, but for whatever reason, they, they haven't really become a, um, an issue even, even in the dry areas. Okay. Uh, rootworm beetles seen, uh, I've, I've, I've been seeing quite a few Northern uh, corn rootworm beetles, uh, in this area. Um, I have, I've, I've heard anecdotally from, from, you know, there's not a lot of guys that do, but, but from the few guys who do have sticky traps in their soybean fields, um, seem to be catching more beetles this year. Uh, and just anecdotally, it seems like I'm seeing more beetles this year. What, what are you seeing and hearing? Yeah, I, I would agree, Troy, that, uh, feels like, you know, last year, rootworm populations, you know, our indications of our, beetle trapping network was that overall beetle population was up last year versus the year before. <clears throat> and I think that trend is continuing. I think more beetles this year than there was last year. I would agree in, in areas, Northerns in particular, very heavy populations of Northern corn rootworm beetles. Uh, now it's interesting, you know, where those are coming from and, and how little root damage that they did in corn um, makes me think that a lot of those northerns are probably coming from grassy areas around cornfields rather than hatching out in the actual cornfield that you're finding the beetles in. And, and we could maybe talk a little more detail on that. But uh, I've, I've been in some fields where there's enough northern corn rootworm beetles in the field that if the larvae had started in that field, I think the root damage would have been pretty severe because it's, it's first year corn, unprotected corn, no trait, no insecticide fields crawling with Northern corn rootworm beetles. You dig the roots, roots look fabulous. No, no signs of feeding whatsoever on the roots. And, and that to me is, is probably because I think a lot of those beetles, the larvae hatched somewhere else and then yeah. moved into the cornfield. Um, <clears throat> Northerns are not known for laying eggs in soybean fields. Uh, we are not known to have the, the, the extended diapause variant, uh, that they do in Iowa. Now it's possible that we do and just don't know it. Um, hard, hard to say, but, um, <clears throat> you know, I, I don't know that Northerns are, <coughs> unless something is changing with that insect that we're not aware of, you know, I don't know that I'm terribly afraid of northerns and soybean fields but if you've got a bunch in a cornfield and you're going to go back to corn on corn in that field that that's different i think you yeah. need to take heed of, of that now the northern is a it's a smaller larvae uh eats less than a western so it takes more northerns to do the same amount of damage but um you know if if uh, if you got a lot of beetles in a field and they lay eggs in that field and the eggs overwinter well and they hatch well um certainly could 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 spell pretty heavy pressure for corn on corn next year in that field. If you are going back to corn. Yeah. Yeah. Um, absolutely. I was in a, a field in, in Southern Logan County. Oh, earlier this week, looking at some SDS and soybeans actually, and uh, just happened to see just a lot of beetles in, and, and uh, start looking close. And, and actually the, probably the beetle I was seeing the most of, was uh, southern corn rootworm beetle. Now you may not get into southerns up uh, up your way, 
we we can um and some falls guys see a lot of rootworm beetles you know crawling all over the windshield or the combine often they're southern and southerns you know even if they lay eggs here they, they do not they cannot overwinter in our in our winters right so, so southern rootworm beetles are not really anything to be afraid of either and then another pest that looked a lot like southerns and and can look a lot like westerns depending on their pattern is bean leaf beetles yep and and i think you know people are are fearful of what's going on with rootworm and and sometimes um southerns and bean leaf beetles get misdiagnosed as rootworm beetles sure so I can't say that I've seen that many Western corn rootworm beetles, especially in soybean fields. And so, you know, I think I'm still comfortable in, in my geography with planting rotated acres to double pro and tricepta and, you know, non, non rootworm products, if, if that is your preference. But uh, I, I do think we need to <clears throat> be getting yellow sticky traps out in soybean fields more often than we do uh too late to do that for this year you know august would have been the primary time to have those traps out to to see what you were catching in bean fields and and we need to you know we, we can't discount carcasses on the on the trap you got to identify the insect to make sure that you're not calling bean leaf beetles rootworm beetles and 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 misdiagnosing what the what the insect is but um that's really the best way to uh estimate what type of rootworm pressure we could have in next year's first year corn. I think a lot of times growers look at the performance of their non-rootworm corn on first year corn this year and hey it yielded great and have a rootworm issue, stood good, yielded good, and hey I'm good. I'll you know I'll do the same thing next year. Well <clears throat> what your double pro yielded on first year corn this year doesn't tell you anything about how many eggs could have been laid in your soybean field this summer. Yeah. And, uh, having those sticky traps out there, which I know nobody's doing that. Um, but just get them out in a few fields in your area and just kind of monitor that overall pressure. And, and hopefully you're not catching any beetles in your soybean fields. And, and if that's the case, then you with confidence <clears throat> stay with your non rootworm corn on rotated acres I would say as you go east in Illinois and as you go north, um, your odds are more likely of having a rootworm problem. As you go south and go west, you know, your odds of getting away without a rootworm problem are better. And, and that's really nothing new. Um, it's kind of always been that way. Um, more, more variant pressure to the east, more pressure of all kinds to the north. And uh, as you go south and west, we're, 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 we generally have lower pressure, but, but I think everywhere in the state, um, we probably have more pressure than we did five years ago. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, and of course, you know, for guys like you and me, we, we love, you know, we love talking about this stuff, but it, but it, you know, it sounds, it sounds kind of negative. We've just spent a half hour talking about all the problems. We're right. Out so let's, <laughs> uh, I mean, we, we, I, oh, I, my I work, think, my, my work is done. My work is done here, <laughs> Troy. <laughs> I mean, I think, you know, uh, all things considered, and you touched on this earlier, I, 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 I feel a lot better about this year's corn crop. 
uh, yeah. than, than, than last year. I think we're, I think we're set up pretty well, you know, um, uh, yeah. barring a major, you know, derecho type thing. Uh, we can't get through a podcast without saying derecho. Um, uh, so, uh, you know, barring something like that, I think we're in pretty good shape. Like you said, beans, maybe a little bit too early to tell yet, but, yeah. but not, not, uh, not anything real scary out there, but there are some things that we want to keep an eye on and, and, uh, uh, but 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 overall, I think we're sitting pretty good. Yeah, I, I would say um, I'm very impressed with the yield potential that I'm seeing in cornfields, considering some of the challenging weather conditions that we've had at times. So I, I honestly haven't been in, you know, with a couple odd exceptions where something, you know, kind of uh, kind of weird happened. I haven't been in anything that was bad. I, I do worry that our expectations are always very high. Right. And when you were driving around in, in late July and early August, I mean, this corn crop could not have been more perfect from the road. Yeah. Could not have had better color. Could not have had, you know, better uniformity. Could not, you know, just, just gorgeous. And, and it was very easy to start thinking, man, this, you know, this could be best ever. And I, and I think there could be some, some pockets where people do have the best corn crop they've ever had, but I think there's going to be places where it's, you know, maybe above average and, and there might be a 50 bushel gap between best ever and above average. Yeah. And, and so I, I think it's so easy for expectations to get set so high that, um, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd rather kind of tamp down expectations a little bit and be pleasantly surprised from the combine seat, um, you know, rather than disappointed. And I'm probably more nervous about beans than I am corn. I, I think especially in my in my geography where we had a wet May, a slightly dry but not terribly dry June, a slightly dry but not terribly dry July, followed by a very dry August. Um, that's a better corn scenario than it is a soybean scenario. It's not ideal for right. corn either, but it probably, probably sets up a little better for corn than it does beans. And so I'm, you know, we had such a good bean crop last year and we've, you know, we've kind of, you know, there, there was a time not all that many years ago when nobody ever had high expectations for their beans. I mean, they just, yep. you know, they, they raise good corn but they didn't have faith they could raise good beans and you know people just kind of just you know they seem to accept mediocrity in their soybeans <laughs> and and in recent years you know earlier planting better weed control more timely weed control better fertility management you know fungicides i mean we've we've had really good you know roundup ready to yield better genetics you know we've had really good success uh pushing bean yields higher and, and so now we've got pretty high expectations for soybeans too. And, um, you know, when I look at the rainfall I've had on some of my farms, um, that does not scream 70 bushel beans to me, but okay. I, I'm just hoping that, uh, when I get out in the field and start taking off across the field and look out of the corner of my eye up at the yield monitor, I, you know, I, I hope it starts with a number that I, uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, let's, uh, uh, to kind of wrap things up here, I know I've, we've, we've talked about this before. I like to let you plug your, uh, your ask the agronomist. I assume you're still doing that. 
I am. Yes, we're we're in our second uh, we're in our second season, and I think we're like uh, I don't know episode eighteen or something for this year. I've actually started doing a podcast uh, of Ask the Agronomist. Now, um, I I have uh, and, and you probably know this. Um, you know the, uh, the the format that you use. Uh, at least I'm using the same one that you use. And, and I, and I think it, it cuts me off in an hour. Now, maybe that's just me, <laughs> but, um, w- what I started, what I started doing, uh, was I just record, you know, I had my iPad sitting there and I use the iPad to record while I'm doing the, the YouTube live broadcast of Ask the Agronomist. And, and we have occasionally, you know, had a second hour of Ask the Agronomist. Now the second hour is never more than five or 10 minutes, but, I've uh, I've discovered that you can't have a second hour on uh, on a podcast because it cuts me off at sixty minutes. So I've got some uh, my my podcast end abruptly uh, sometimes when I when I go when I go a little long. But yeah, ask the agronomist is uh, is something that you helped me start and and thank you for that. And um, um, still having a ball doing it. Uh, get lots of really good feedback from customers. So yeah, if you want to join in, it's uh, every other Thursday morning. The next episode is next Thursday, um, seven thirty to eight thirty on our West Central Illinois DeKalb-Bass Grove YouTube channel. Uh, you can uh, see all the old episodes uh, recorded there. Um, even uh, even going way back to when you helped me do uh, Ask the Agronomist. There's uh, those old episodes on there. And, um, just, just something that, uh, we, we have a good time with and, uh, trying to try, trying to make it better. We've, we've, we've learned how to incorporate some pictures into, uh, into that, um, um, format and having some more guest hosts in that format and, um, do, doing the podcast. We get some feedback that some people would rather, um, digest their agronomy as a podcast rather than a webcast and uh so so yeah it's uh, still going on and and uh appreciate your uh your support of that nope absolutely and i encourage everybody to check that out uh you know as you, as you can tell by listening here lance is a is a wealth of agronomic knowledge and and always worth always worth uh taking the time to uh to to catch his insight so so definitely if you get the if you get the opportunity check that out so lance thanks again uh always great conversation really appreciate it and uh i'm sure we will be talking to you again yeah well i always look forward to it and uh everybody uh stay safe and uh hopefully uh have a some pleasant surprises at harvest time and uh we'll uh we'll be back together maybe uh maybe the next time we can talk about some harvest results and uh and what we're uh, what we're seeing absolutely looking forward to it well thanks again lance thanks to everyone for listening and we'll see you next time on the next episode of the illinois agronomy update thank you